Chapter Seven of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They went to a quiet hotel far downtown and took a small apartment which they thought they could easily afford for the day or two they need spend in looking up a furnished flat. They were used to staying at this hotel when they came on for a little outing in New York after some rigid winter in Boston at the time of the spring exhibitions. They were remembered there from year to year, the coloured call-boys, who never seemed to get any older, smiled upon them, and the clerk called March by name even before he registered it. He asked if Mrs. March were with him, and said that he supposed they would want their usual quarters, and in a moment they were domesticated in a far interior that seemed to have been waiting for them in a clean, quiet, patient disoccupation ever since they left it two years before. The little parlour, with its gilt paper and ebonized furniture, was the lightest of the rooms, but it was not very light at noonday without the gas, which the bell-boy now flared up for them. The uproar of the city came to it in a soothing murmur, and they took possession of its peace and comfort with open celebration. After all, they agreed, there was no place in the world so delightful as a hotel apartment like that. The boasted charms of home were nothing to it and then the magic of its being always there, ready for any one, every one, just as if it were for some one alone. It was like the experience of an Arabian Nights hero come true for all the race. "'Oh, why can't we always stay here, just we too? Mrs. March sighed to her husband, as he came out of his room, rubbing his face red with the towel, while she studied a new arrangement of her bonnet and handbag on the mantel and ignore the past i'm willing i've no doubt that the children could get on perfectly well without us and could find some lot in the scheme of providence that would really be just as well for them yes or could contrive somehow never to have existed i should insist upon that if they are don't you see that we couldn't wish them not to be oh yes i see your point it's simply incontrovertible she laughed and said well at any rate if we can't find a flat to suit us we can all crowd into these three rooms somehow for the winter and then browse about for meals by the week we could get them much cheaper and we could save on the eating as they do in europe or on something else something else probably said march but we won't take this apartment till the ideal furnished flat winks out altogether we shall not have any trouble. We can easily find someone who is going south for the winter, and will be glad to give up their flat to the right party at a nominal rent. That's my notion. That's what the Evanses did one winter when they came on here in February. All but the nominality of the rent. Yes, and we could pay a very good rent and still save something on letting our house. You can settle yourselves in a hundred different ways in New York, and that is one merit of the place. But if everything else fails, we can come back to this. I want you to take the refusal of it, Basil, and we'll commence looking this very evening as soon as we've had dinner. I cut a lot of things out of the Herald as we came on. See here. She took a long strip of paper out of her handbag, with minute advertisements pinned transversely upon it, and forming the effect of some glittering nondescript vertebrate. Looks something like the sea serpent, said March, drying his hands on the towel, while he glanced up and down the list. But we shan't have any trouble. I've no doubt there are half a dozen things there that will do. You haven't gone up town, 
because we must be near the every-other-week office. No, but I wish Mr. Fulkerson hadn't called it that. It always makes one think of jam yesterday and jam tomorrow, but never jam today, in Through the Looking-Glass. They're all in this region. They were still at their table, beside a low window, where some sort of never-blooming shrub symmetrically balanced itself in a large pot, with a leaf to the right and a leaf to the left, and a spear up the middle, when Fulkerson came stepping square-footedly over the thick dining-room carpet. He wagged in the air a gay hand of salutation at the sight of them, and of repression when they offered to rise to meet him. Then, with an apparent simultaneity of action, he gave a hand to each, pulled up a chair from the next table, put his hat and stick on the floor beside it, and seated himself. "'Well, you burned your ships behind you, sure enough,' he said, beaming his satisfaction upon them from eyes and teeth. "'The ships are burned,' said March, "'though I'm not sure we alone did it. But here we are, looking for shelter, and a little anxious about the disposition of the natives.' "'Oh, they're an awfully peaceable lot,' said Fulkerson. "'I've been around among the cacique a little, and I think I've got two or three places that will just suit you, Mrs. March. How did you leave the children?' Oh, how kind of you! Very well, and very proud to be left in charge of the smoking wrecks. Fulkerson naturally paid no attention to what she said, being but secondarily interested in the children at best. Here are some things, right in this neighbourhood, within gunshot of the office, and if you want you can go and look at them to-night. The agents gave me houses where the people would be in. We will go and look at them instantly, said Mrs. March or as soon as you've had coffee with us. Never do, Fulkerson replied. He gathered up his hat and stick, just rushed in to say hello, and got to run right away again. I tell you, March, things are humming. I'm after those fellows with the sharp stick all the while, to keep them from loafing on my house, and at the same time I'm just bubbling over with ideas about the lone hand, wish we could call it that, that I want to talk up with you. "'Well, come to breakfast,' said Mrs. March cordially. "'No, the ideas will keep till you've secured your lodge in this vast wilderness. Good-bye.' "'You're as nice as you can be, Mr. Fulkerson,' she said, "'to keep us in mind when you have so much to occupy you.' "'I wouldn't have anything to occupy me if I hadn't kept you in mind, Mrs. March,' said Fulkerson, going off upon as good a speech as he could apparently hope to make. "'Why, Basil,' said Mrs. March, when he was gone, "'he's charming. But now we mustn't lose an instant. Let's see where the places are.' She ran over the half-dozen agents' permits. "'Capital! First-rate! The very thing! Every one! Well, I consider ourselves settled. We can go back to the children to-morrow if we like, though I rather think I should like to stay over another day, and get a little rested for the final pulling-up that's got to come.' But this simplifies everything enormously, and Mr. Fulkerson is as thoughtful and as sweet as he can be. I know you will get on well with him. He has such a good heart, and his attitude toward you, Basil, is beautiful, always, so respectful, or not that so much as appreciative. Yes, appreciative, that's the word. I must always keep that in mind. It's quite important to do so, said March. Yes, she assented seriously and we must not forget just what kind of flat we are going to look for. The sine qua nons are an elevator and steam heat, not above the third floor to begin with. 
then we must each have a room and you must have your study and i must have my parlour and the two girls must each have a room with the kitchen and dining-room how many does that make ten i thought eight well no matter you can work in the parlour and run into your bedroom when anybody comes and i can sit in mine and the girls must put up with one if it's large and sunny though i've always given them two at home and the kitchen must be sunny so they can sit in it and the rooms must all have outside light and the rent must not be over eight hundred for the winter we only get a thousand for our whole house and we must save something out of that so as to cover the expenses of moving now do you think you can remember all that not the half of it said march but you can or if you forget a third of it i can come in with my partial half and more than make it up she had brought her bonnet and sack downstairs with her and was transferring them from the hat-rack to her person while she talked the friendly door-boy let them into the street and the clear october evening air brightened her so that as she tucked her hand under her husband's arm and began to pull him along she said if we find something right away and we're just as likely to get the right flat soon as late it's all a lottery we'll go to the theatre somewhere she had a moment's panic about having left the agent's permits on the table and after remembering that she had put them into her little shopping-bag where she kept her money each note crushed into a round wad and had left it on the hat-rack where it would certainly be stolen she found it on her wrist she did not think that very funny but after a first impulse to inculpate her husband she let him laugh while they stopped under a lamp and she held the permits half a yard away to read the numbers on them where are your glasses isabel on the mantel in our room of course then you ought to have brought a pair of tongs i wouldn't cut off second-hand jokes basil she said and why here she cried whirling round to the door before which they had halted this is the very number well i do believe it's a sign one of those coloured men who soften the trade of janitor in many of the smaller apartment houses in new york by the sweetness of their race let the marches in or rather welcomed them to the possession of the premises by the bow with which he acknowledged their permit it was a large old mansion cut up into five or six dwellings but it had kept some of the traits of its former dignity which please people of their sympathetic tastes the dark mahogany trim of sufficiently ugly design gave a rich gloom to the hallway which was wide and paved with marble the carpeted stairs curved aloft through a generous space there is no elevator mrs march asked of the janitor he answered no ma'am only two flights up so winningly that she said oh in courteous apology and whispered to her husband as she followed lightly up we'll take it basil if it's like the rest if it's like him you mean i don't wonder they wanted to own them she hurriedly philosophized if i had such a creature nothing but death should part us and i should no more think of giving him his freedom no we couldn't afford it returned her husband the apartment which the janitor unlocked for them and lit up from those chandeliers and brackets of gilt brass in the form of vine bunches leaves and tendrils in which the early gas-fitter realized most of his conceptions of beauty had rather more of the ugliness than the dignity of the hall 
but the rooms were large and they grouped themselves in a reminiscence of the time when they were part of a dwelling that had its charm its pathos its impressiveness where they were cut up into smaller spaces it had been done with the frankness with which a proud old family of fallen fortunes practices its economies the rough pine floors showed a black border of tack-heads where carpets had been lifted and put down for generations the white paint was yellow with age the apartment had light at the front and the back and two or three rooms had glimpses of the day through small windows let into their corners another one seemed lifting an appealing eye to heaven through a glass circle in its ceiling the rest must darkle in perpetual twilight yet something pleased in it all and mrs march had gone far to adapt the different rooms to the members of her family when she suddenly thought and for her to think was to say why but there's no steam heat no ma'am the janitor admitted but there's grates in most of the rooms and there's furnace heat in the halls that's true she admitted and having placed her family in the apartments it was hard to get them out again could we manage she referred to her husband why i shouldn't care for the steam heat if what is the rent he broke off to ask the janitor nine hundred sir march concluded to his wife if it were furnished why of course what could i have been thinking of we're looking for a furnished flat she explained to the janitor and this was so pleasant and homelike that i never thought whether it was furnished or not she smiled upon the janitor and he entered into the joke and chuckled so amiably at her flattering oversight on the way downstairs that she said as she pinched her husband's arm now if you don't give him a quarter i'll never speak to you again basil i would have given half a dollar willingly to get you beyond his glamour said march when they were safely on the pavement outside if it hadn't been for my strength of character you'd have taken an unfurnished flat without heat and with no elevator at nine hundred a year when you had just sworn to me steam heat and elevator furniture and eight hundred yes how could i have lost my head so completely she said with a lenient amusement in her aberration which she was not always able to feel in her husband's the next time a coloured janitor opens the door to us i'll tell him the apartment doesn't suit at the threshold it's the only way to manage you isabel it's true i am in love with the whole race i never saw one of them that didn't have perfectly angelic manners i think we shall all be black in heaven that is black souled that isn't the usual theory said march well perhaps not she assented where are we going now oh yes to the xenophon she pulled him gaily along again and after they had walked a block down and half a block over they stood before the apartment house of that name which was cut on the gas lamps on either side of the heavily spiked aesthetic hinged black door the titter of an electric bell brought a large fat buttons with a stage effect of being dressed to look small who said he would call the janitor and they waited in the dimly splendid copper-coloured interior admiring the whirls and waves into which the wall-paint was combed till the janitor came in his gold-banded cap like a continental porker when they said they would like to see mrs grosvenor green's apartment he owned his inability to cope with the affair and said he must send for the superintendent 
He was either in the Herodotus or the Thucydides, and would be there in a minute. The buttons brought him, a Yankee of brow-beating presence in plain clothes, almost before they had time to exchange a frightened whisper in recognition of the fact that there could be no doubt of the steam-heat and elevator in this case. Half-stifled in the one, they mounted in the other eight stories, while they tried to keep their self-respect under the gaze of the superintendent, which they felt was classing and assessing them with unfriendly accuracy. They could not, and they faltered, abashed at the threshold of Mrs. Grosvenor Green's apartment, while the superintendent lit the gas in the gangway that he called a private hall, and in the drawing-room in the succession of chambers stretching rearward to the kitchen. Everything had been done by the architect to save space, and everything to waste it by Mrs. Grosvenor Green. She had conformed to a law for the necessity of turning round in each room, and had folding beds in the chambers, but there her subordination had ended, and wherever you might have turned round, she had put a gimcrack so that you would knock it over if you did turn. The place was rather pretty, and even imposing at first glance, and it took several joint ballots for March and his wife to make sure that with the kitchen there were only six rooms. At every door hung a portiere from large rings on a brass rod, every shelf and dressing-case and mantel was littered with gimcracks, and the corners of the tiny rooms were curtained off, and behind these portieres swarmed more gimcracks. The front of the upright piano had what March called a short-skirted portiere on it, and the top was covered with vases, with dragon candlesticks, and with Jap fans, which also expanded themselves batwise on the walls between the etchings and the watercolours. The floors were covered with filling, and then rugs, and then skins. The easy chairs all had tidies, Armenian and Turkish and Persian. The lounges and sofas had embroidered cushions hidden under the tidies. The radiator was concealed by a Jap screen, and over the top of this some Arab scarfs were flung. There was a superabundance of clocks. China pugs guarded the hearth, a brass sunflower smiled from the top of either andiron, and a brass peacock spread its tail before them inside a high filigree fender. On one side was a coal hod in repoussed brass, and on the other a wrought-iron wood-basket. Some red Japanese bird-kites were stuck about in the necks of spelter vases, a crimson Jap umbrella hung open beneath the chandelier, and each globe had a shade of yellow silk. March, when he had recovered his self-command a little in the presence of the agglomeration, comforted himself by calling the bric-a-brac James Cracks, as if this were their full name. The disrespect he was able to show the whole apartment by means of this joke strengthened him to say boldly to the superintendent that it was altogether too small. Then he asked carelessly what the rent was. Two hundred and fifty. The Marches gave a start and looked at each other. "'Don't you think we could make it do?' she asked him, and he could see that she had mentally saved five hundred dollars as the difference between the rent of their house and that of this flat. It has some very pretty features, and we could manage to squeeze in, couldn't we? "'You won't find another furnished flat like it for no two-fifty a month in the whole city,' the superintendent put in. They exchanged glances again, and March said carelessly, "'It's too small.' 
There's a vacant flat in the Herodotus for eighteen hundred a year, and one in the Thucydides for fifteen, the superintendent suggested, clicking his keys together as they sank down in the elevator. Seven rooms and bath. Thank you, said March. We're looking for a furnished flat. They felt that the superintendent parted from them with repressed sarcasm. Oh, Basil, do you think we really made him think it was the smallness and not the dearness? No, but we saved our self-respect in the attempt, and that's a great deal. Of course, I wouldn't have taken it anyway, with only six rooms, and so high up. But what prices! Now, we must be very circumspect about the next place. It was a janitress, large, fat, with her arms wound up in her apron, who received them there. Mrs. March gave her a succinct but perfect statement of their needs. She failed to grasp the nature of them, or feigned to do so. She shook her head, and said that her son would show them the flat. There was a radiator visible in the narrow hall, and Isabel tacitly compromised on steam heat without an elevator, as the flat was only one flight up. When the sun appeared from below with a small kerosene hand-lamp, it appeared that the flat was unfurnished, but there was no stopping him till he had shown it in all its impossibility. When they got safely away from it and into the street, March said, "'Well, have you had enough for to-night, Isabel? Shall we go to the theatre now?' "'Not on any account. I want to see the whole list of flats that Mr. Fulkerson thought would be the very thing for us.' She laughed, but with a certain bitterness. "'You'll be calling him my Mr. Fulkerson next, Isabel.' "'Oh, no!' The fourth address was a furnished flat without a kitchen in a house with a general restaurant. The fifth was a furnished house. At the sixth the pathetic widow and her pretty daughter wanted to take a family to board, and would give them a private table at a rate which the Marches would have thought low in Boston. Mrs. March came away tingling with compassion for their evident anxiety, and this pity naturally soured into a sense of injury. Well, I must say, I have completely lost confidence in Mr. Fulkerson's judgment. Anything more utterly different from what I told him we wanted, I couldn't imagine. If he doesn't manage any better about his business than he has done about this, it will be a perfect failure. Well, well, let's hope he'll be more circumspect about that, her husband returned with ironical propitiation. But I don't think it's Fulkerson's fault altogether. Perhaps it's the house agent's. They're a very illusory generation. There seems to be something in the human habitation that corrupts the natures of those who deal in it, to buy or sell it, to hire or let it. You go to an agent and tell him what kind of a house you want. He has no such house, and he sends you to look at something altogether different, upon the well-ascertained principle that if you can't get what you want, you will take what you can get. You don't suppose the party that took our house in Boston was looking for any such house. He was looking for a totally different kind of house in another part of the town. I don't believe that, his wife broke in. Well, no matter, but see what a scandalous rent you asked for it. We didn't get much more than half, and besides the agent told me to ask fourteen hundred. Oh, I'm not blaming you, Isabel. I'm only analyzing the house-agent and exonerating Fulkerson. Well, I don't believe he told them just what we wanted, and at any rate I'm done with agents. Tomorrow I'm going entirely by advertisements. 
End of chapter 7